Okay. Hey guys, uh, before I left for the last trip I went on, and I'm supposed to go to South Africa tomorrow, by the way. But they, in South Africa, just this afternoon, they brought a law saying you can't have gatherings that are larger than 100 people. So, um, yeah, so before we went, we were talking about the secret place, because uh, remember, remember what we've been examining. Uh, we went down the road of does God, uh, we won't even go there, we'll just go straight to secret place. Don't want to spend time rehashing what we've done. We were talking about the secret place. We talked about Psalm 91, and now we continue with that. And then if you go back and listen to the previous sermons, you will find the context in which we've been uh, placing Psalm 91. And it has nothing to do with COVID. We started that before COVID. Uh, so, guys, when you look at Psalm 91, um, most um, Hebrew sages uh, suggest that when Moses talked about... Um, the secret place of the Most High. He was actually referring to his experience uh, shortly after he came down from Mount Sinai. So when he talks about he that dwells in the shadow of the Almighty is the one who hides in the secret place of the Most High. The secret place of the Most High was that place that Moses went to for 40 days and nights where he ascended Mount Sinai and spent his time hidden under the hand of God and in the secret place of the Most High. And it is out of that experience that it's suggested that Moses is writing Psalm 91, where he actually was in the midst of the dark cloud, which was a place of holy concealment, where he had this face-to-face -face conversation with God, far, far from the madding crowd below, where Aaron and the rest of the Israelites were actually carving a golden calf. And out of this experience on Mount Sinai with Yahweh, someone no one had ever seen, and Moses never sees him fully. He just sees him passing by. Out of that experience, now Moses writes Psalm 91 where he says, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. So this is a man who actually experienced something that no human being has experienced since. Because not even Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration probably saw what Moses saw. Sure, it was hard to look at Jesus in his divinity, but this was something else when Yahweh descended on Mount Sinai. Exodus 33 and 34 talk about it. It was so dreadful. And dreadful here is not grotesque or ugly. Dreadful here is something that brings up such fear out of the awe and the reverence of a holy God that people begin to back off because the whole mountain began to tremble. Because here's the reality, guys. The fallen earth cannot handle the glory of God even when he turns up in limited, um, in limited proportions, if I can call it that. The earth, if it had not fallen, when it was pristine, could have handled God and did handle God because God would come and walk in the Garden of Eden having conversations with Adam. And yet after the earth has fallen, the groaning that is induced cannot handle God. Where the whole earth begins to tremble. It begins to back off. People begin to back off. And out of that, you can imagine why Moses was unafraid, man. He, he didn't even, I mean, when God says, I'll hide you behind my hand, it's just an anthropomorphic statement where God is compared to a man and so you give him a hand. It wasn't like God was shielding him with his hand. It was God saying, hey, you cannot see me because you will not survive. 
And out of that, Psalm 91 comes. I'm saying to you that this was an external God because God could not live inside Moses. I'm saying to you that we actually have him dwelling in us. You don't have to climb up a mountain to meet him. But if we can begin to imagine what it is to have the presence of Yahweh in us, in our midst, which is why sometimes I'm not scared of meeting like this. It's very hard to be scared with Jesus present here. Uh, what are we really scared of? Death? Really? Is that a big deal? It's such an external temporal thing. There are things that are far richer, eternal and internal. And so how do you live in this secret place? Moses had to ascend somewhere. He ascended it, found God in this place, and then out of his experience, he begins to write, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And after that, he was never afraid. Eh? He had seen him in the burning bush, but that experience paled in comparison. Paled in comparison. There it was an object that was set alight by God. It was still blazing, it was still magnificent, but it was nothing compared to what happened on Sinai. And so how do you and I now, since we don't have a Sinai to climb, how do you and I live there? The strange thing is, um, the first thing that needs to happen if you want to live in the secret place of the Most High is you have to be invited. And guess what? You are. Because very clearly God says to Moses in Exodus 34, for, listen, I want you to take those two tablets you've hewn with your own hands and I'm going to inscribe on them again because you broke the first two. So here, I want you to come up the mountain. So there's an invitation to come up the mountain. And then, uh, and in our case, guys, this invitation is very simple. You are invited, and what are you invited to? Entering into what God is doing. Entering into what God is doing. That's the invitation. The invitation is not into worship. The invitation is not into prayer. The invitation is not into some kind of religious um, uh, activity. The invitation is, hey, I am constantly at work. Do you want to enter into what I'm doing? Entering into what he is doing. Doesn't matter whether it's Manoj getting married, whether it's Jeevan getting uh, a car, whether it's Derek uh, getting married and getting a car. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day... <laughs> Getting a car for your brother. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But the car is for his brother. Yeah. <laughs> so, at the end of the day, guys, the strange thing about God is he operates both in extremely ordinary mundane circumstances and extremely extraordinary divine circumstances. And he doesn't divide them. Eh? Like he's as involved in your washing of dishes and you're finding hand sanitizer as he is in the salvation of an entire nation. He's involved in both. And in both cases, what he's asking is, hey, you're invited, but Jacob, listen to what I'm inviting you into. I'm inviting you into entering into what I'm doing. And therein lies the secret place, man. It's the safest place on earth. It is the safest place on earth. Second, um, once he invites you, prepare. It's good to go prepared. We'll talk about that. Talk about what preparing looks like. 
Once he invites you, prepare. And this was a common theme in most of Jesus' teachings in parables. Remember when he says, and uh, even in that parable where he says, many are uh, invited, few are chosen. Or many are? Yeah. Many are called, few are chosen. He talks about this banquet where people are invited, and yet people turn out without being prepared. Some people come up with excuses. Others turn up without being prepared. Prepare, we'll talk about that. Third, exert faith if you want to enter the secret place. Because the secret place is not actually a place, guys. It's not. In the Old Testament, everything was a place. You had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You had to go to Mount Sinai. You had to go to a certain river. But no longer do we go to places. Because God isn't found in a place anymore. He's found in a people. So we're not talking about going to a place. Therefore, there's an exertion of faith required. We'll talk about that. So that's one, that's two, that's three. The fourth. The fourth one is um, once you enter, dwell. Dwell for 40 days and 40 nights, whether it be in an ark, whether it be in the desert, or whether it be in the mountain, learn how to dwell, learn how to reside, learn how to rest in that place that he's invited into, you into. I mean, Noah spent 40 days and 40 nights in a boat. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in a desert. Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights on a mountain. It doesn't matter which place you went into. The, de the, the, the desert was full of wild animals, serpents, uh, the devil, temptations. And yet, guess what? Every time you go into the wilderness, you find God stronger than any other place. Never write a song about how miserable you were in the wilderness because that wilderness was definitely not God's making. Any wilderness that God sends you into is a place of absolute strength where people find God like they find him no other place. I'm tired of people telling me how difficult the wilderness God is taking them through is. It is false. It's not biblical. Check any wilderness in the Bible. And every wilderness that God takes you into is a place where God is found like no other place. Be it Jesus, be it Elijah, be it Hagar, be it Ishmael, be it um, Israel, be it Paul. Every wilderness is a place where you come back stronger because you meet a God who is much more than you ever expected. And so it doesn't matter where you end up having God take you. Because he builds his secret places in different places, man. So it doesn't matter whether it's an ark, whether it's in the wilderness, or whether it's in a glorious mountain. Learn how to dwell. Learn how to rest. And the last one is, when you come out of there, make sure you unveil his glory. Make sure you unveil what you learned in the secret place. Unveil what you learned in the secret place. Make sure you unveil what you learned in the secret place. Any questions before we go on? Four is dwell. Dwell wherever you are. Uh, wherever God is right now taking you to figure out more of him. Wherever he wants to reveal himself in a way you've never seen him before. Be it in an ark afloat in the water, be it in the wilderness, or be it on a mountain. Wherever he takes you so that he can show you another facet of his nature. Learn how to dwell there. Don't, 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 don't get out of that place fast. If it takes 40 days and night, let the process be complete. Five is unveil what you learn. 
unveil what you learnt in the secret place. Unveil what you learnt in the secret place. Unveil what you learnt in the secret place. Okay, the fourth one. Let me let me give you a good example. When Sheldon first uh, came to this church, he just wanted to do stuff. Can I do this? Can I do that? Uh, maybe I should uh, lead worship. Maybe I should play the piano. Maybe I should do. Uh, and in the end, I remember sitting him down and telling him, "Hey, Sheldon, can you not do anything? Can you just let God iron out really lousy stuff out of your life and build really good stuff into your life?" And it took a while, and I used to feel so bad for Sheldon because he was like a frustrated horse. Wanting to run like crazy. So who asked this question? Okay. <laughs> so uh, he was like this horse that wanted to run uh, and uh, not a horse that wanted to be trained. And I know I've said this before, but the difference between the horses that run and the horses that pull the Queen's chariot through the streets of London are very simple. The horses that run can gallop through meadows at breakneck speed, and then they're the horses that train to pull the Queen's chariots, and they're put through a series of tests between cannonball fire and bullets and car exhausts and crowd noises, and through all that, they have to learn how to respond to the whisper of the master, and once they learn that, six of them are picked to pull the Queen's chariot through the streets of London. And it takes such a long time. And these are thoroughbreds that have now been tamed. They don't lose their strength, but it's meekness. It is strength under control. And I remember telling uh, Sheldon the story and saying, hey, do you really want to get to a place where you can dwell 40 days and 40 nights, learn the process so that after that, God can tell you to do anything and you can do anything without thinking? Or do you want to be given a job to do? And this is our plight. Eh? I'm just using Sheldon because... Uh, if he gets upset, it doesn't bother me much. But, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but the point is this, that this is the process that all of us have to go through. There's just no shortcut when it comes to the kingdom. Just no shortcut. Does that answer your question, Jeevan? Okay. <laughs> Any other questions? Hey, Moses could have gotten this stuff inscribed by God on the stones and then said, all right, job is done, new set of Ten Commandments, let's go down. What was he doing there 40 days and nights? What was he doing there? I mean, why wouldn't you be like stunned by the presence of God in a place, man? How could you depart? I mean, he had to depart because I think God said you have to go. Otherwise, who leaves places like that? Enjoy where you are at if you think it is God and wait for God to begin to expand you and push you into the new place. If you begin to desire things before time, you'll end up having what you want, but you won't be ready for that space. And if you are in a wrong place, get out. Because that place can't handle you, so it will only do one other thing. It will squeeze you back to size. Let me repeat the second part again. If you're in a place that you don't fit anymore, it will squeeze you into shape. 
It's like wearing shoes that you've outgrown. Somehow you can squeeze your feet back in there. But my God, it's going to hurt, even though the shoes look good. Any questions? But Jacob, how do I find out if the space is good or not? If God hasn't already told you, because most of you get uh, an idea before anyone even comes and tells you. If God hasn't told you, then go sit with someone who you think hears God and asks them. And if that, if you don't have anybody, then come to me. And we can talk and see. Any questions? Okay. Diana, any questions? You look like you have a question beginning to gurgle. Do I? Do you leave where you are? Not if, well, yeah, I understand your question. Till Denny's closes down, we can always meet and talk at Denny's. Pray that it doesn't close down. Okay, so uh, we talked about invitation. I don't, I don't know how, what's the time? Oh, that clock is actually right. Is it 3.33? Okay. Um, Derek, did you tell Charlie and his friends that we go on and on forever? Okay. Uh, so guys, the first thing is invitation. And so invitation is where you enter into what God is doing, into what God is doing, and you embrace it. You enter into what God is doing. You enter into what God is doing. It's a risky embrace. It's a risky embrace. It's a risky embrace of his action. It's a risky embrace. It's a risky embrace of his supernatural action. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, even though from, a, uh, from God's perspective, it's not at all risky, from our perspective, it seems to be a risky embrace of God's supernatural action when it's really not. So it's a risky embrace to step out of a boat and walk on water, but it's really not. But this invitation thing has to be a thing that, I, I know we've talked about it so many times, but it's worth saying it again and again. Guys, every week, every day, get up and look for manna. So the question is, Jacob, what is this manna thing? Get up and look for what God is saying for that day. Give us this daily bread was way, way beyond food. They used to go out every morning and look for manna. Make it a, make it a, make it a practice. Get into the habit of saying, hey, Father, I know the things that are predictable. I know the things that I'm called to. I know the things that I have to do because of the fact that I live in this world. But besides that, what is it about? And manna just means what is it? What is it about that you have for me that I can enter into because I so want to embrace, embrace the supernatural action that you are involved in today? Make it a daily habit. And it doesn't matter where we are at. doesn't matter that you may have sinned yesterday. God has a way of new mercies every morning and faithfulness every evening. Guys, there is nothing as helpful to break away from a life of sin and worldliness as being connected to the living God. You listen to good music, you leave bad music. You eat good food, you leave bad food. You eat at a better restaurant, you leave the sadder restaurant. You find a better school, you leave the old school. 
You come to BC, you always leave Ontario. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it wasn't that funny, Mike. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, guys. Um, once you enter into this way of living with God on a daily basis, you will find that life becomes a very godly life more easy. And at the end of the day, faith is your response to what God has already provided, right? Faith is, faith is not stepping into something that you are actively pursuing. Faith is stepping into something that God has already provided. It's a risky embrace of what he's already provided. It's appropriating what he's already done. I'd suggest to you that acts, uh, think, think of this, huh? in, a, in a day, how many times do we indulge in acts that require no recognition of God, that require no faith or reliance on God. And I would suggest to you that when you look at the list of things you do that does not require a recognition of God, that does not require faith, that does not require a dependence or a reliance on God, I would suggest to you that none of those acts are regarded in heaven and they're not respected in heaven because the strange thing according to Hebrews 11.4 is that any act or work that does not have in it a reliance or dependence of God is not regarded. How do we know that? Look at what Abel and Cain brought. God regarded Abel's sacrifice because Abel brought it with faith and Cain's was not given with faith. So even in the things that you are good at, what if we cultivated a dependence and reliance on God? See, the problem is we think the opposite of faith is doubt or we think the opposite of faith is fear. The opposite of faith is not doubt or fear. It is self-reliance. For far too long we've been taught that the opposite of faith is doubt. Hey, doubt seems to be natural because ever since the fall of the world, it is natural for the mind to just click into rationale. And doubt can always be overcome by going back into the word and finding what God says. Fear can be overcome too. But what do you do with self-reliance? You have become and I have become so self-reliant, especially in the areas that we are good at, that we don't need to depend on him. What if we learned how to begin to be reliant in the very areas where we're really good at stuff. Imagine what will happen then. Let's assume I'm good at worship. What if I became reliant on you, or on God? Imagine what that will then do to the worship. What if you're good at computers? Or what if you're good at whatever you do and you become more reliant on him? Any questions? Um, washing dishes is not my speciality, so let me choose something else. Um, <laughs> mundane things. Uh, I'll give you a very simple example. Eh? This is really dumb. I really didn't want to share it, but you forced me to. Um, uh, when I go and park underground, uh, I have to go down four levels. And every time I go down four levels, I have the option to turn right or to op the option to turn left and it's such a silly thing you can turn right or left you can do whatever i want but i've begun to play this game with god where i say father i know this is absurd and silly but anytime you want me to turn right or left 
while I go down this, can you just begin to tell me how to go? I'd like to do it just so I get into the practice of doing really silly things by asking you. And so every time I go down, I'll follow my natural path, which I've taken, but every now and then when I come to the turn, I'll just throw this question at him, any choices? Not because turning right or left is going to save my life, or uh, not because I'm going to find $10 uh, on the ground and then stop the car and put it in and then find the car going away because I forgot to put it on brake. The point, <laughs> the point is, by, by learning how to listen in the silliest of things, you begin to learn how to listen on the more important things. So you can begin to bring him into the mundane, where you begin to rely on him, not because of any other reason, but because you want to have your ear finely tuned. During times of worship, um, um, like today I, know, I knew I was going to lead worship because uh, Jane is a slave driver. I've just gotten back from a trip and she asked me to lead worship. But um, uh, that family is really getting it today. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so, uh, so I mean, standing here, my only thing is, Father, I know how to do this. I've done this for 27 or 28 years, but could you just show me how you want to go? So that we ended up skipping songs, doing four lines from each song and going from song to song. And suddenly I realized that the worship team was not leading. It was a congregation that was leading. Include him, man, in these little things. It's so easy to do this. And remember, March and April, we're going to try and figure out God um, and his presence so that by May 1st, we are so aware that we'll miss him when we are not aware. It'll be like couples on a honeymoon where, honey, where were you? But I was only gone for two minutes. It'll become that kind of a thing. <laughs> It'll be cool, man. I, I believe that's how it happens. What do I know? <laughs> so, uh, remember the acts or works that do not carry in it reliance or recognition of God or of faith are actually not respected in heaven. Very odd, eh? But they're not respected in heaven. Here's the other thing we need to do. Faith always names a journey, guys. Faith always names a journey. Faith names a journey. As in, um, as soon as you think God is saying something to you, regardless of whether it be how to deal with this present epidemic or how to deal with um, uh, future prospects or how to deal with the situation that you're presently going through, faith names a journey. It doesn't leave things unnamed. It puts into words what you expect. The easiest way to hollow out faith is to have low expectations. Lower your expectations and you will need very little faith. So faith names a journey. So name what you are expecting of God based on what God is saying you are being invited to enter into. Name what God is um, expecting you to enter into. Name it. And when you name it, you have to voice it. You have to voice it. Name the journey. Once you do that, begin to recognize and speak about the impossibility of it. Recognize the impossibility of it. 
Recognize the impossibility of it. Once you recognize the impossibility of it, dare to trust God. Dare to trust God. Once you dare to trust God, grasp the outcome as your present possession. Grasp the outcome as your present possession. As your present possession. And then it doesn't matter whether you receive it in two minutes or 20, uh, 20 years. Any questions on, oh God, this is such a mess. <laughs> Any questions? Faith names a journey. So first you name the journey. Go ahead. Yeah, if it is time dependent and it ain't happening, go back and ask God why. Hey, this is a very conversational God, eh? So if you need something by tomorrow and you've been standing and you do not know how it's going to happen, go and ask God. Begin to have conversations like, don't you know it's tomorrow, Father? And I still don't have an answer. What do I do next? Go ask Him. Faith must be so chill that there should be no uh, stress in it. The moment faith is a matter of stressing, you know that something is missing. It has to be from a place where it, it, it is relational and conversational. Whenever anything with God loses relationality, you know that it ain't pure. Fear causes a loss in relationality. Doubt causes a loss in relationality. As with your spouse, if there was fear between you and your spouse, it's impossible to relate the way you can. If there's doubt, it's just out of question. So one of the ways you know whether you are walking in faith or not is, is the quality of your relationship. It is improving. It still maintains the same pleasure or increased pleasure that, than before. And there's no disturbance to it. Someone asked me this question. So um, uh, when, you're, when, you're, when, you, when you're anxious about something, how do you know whether that anxiety is created by you or whether that anxiety is created by um, uh, God in terms of God saying, hey, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. Is it God saying you've got to do something, do something? Or is it you saying you've got to do something, do something? At the end of the day, guys, whenever there's fretting involved, fretting, do not fret, it says in Psalm 37. Whenever there's fretting involved, you need to go and realize the fact that fretting is evil and it rises from my intent to have my way and it usually is a, uh, is a symptom of control and it usually happens without planning that involves God. Let me repeat that again. Whenever I fret over something, when I'm, how do I know whether an anxiety that I have is an anxiety that comes from me or whether it's an anxiety where God is prompting me to keep checking? How I know it is, whenever I fret, it is either because I am trying to control the outcome 
without planning with God. Whenever I fret, it is usually because I want my way and I do not have God involved in it. Jesus never fretted because he did not ever have his plans in mind and he always included the Spirit of God in the way he needed to go. Anxiety is usually a direct result of me trying to control stuff and finding out that I'm not able to control stuff. Hence, everybody wants toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, man, how much we try to control stuff. So faith names the journey. Make sure you voice out what your expectations are. And if your expectations are not high enough, if Bill Gates or Steve Jobs can meet your needs, you don't need God. And they can meet most Christians' needs. Between Gates and Jobs, we could have a new God called Gates Jobs. Yeah. So yeah, or Jeff, throw Jeff Bezos in too and then you'll get things delivered really fast. There'll be no need for faith. So name a journey, May voice it out. May your expectations be so ridiculous. Then recognize the impossibility of it. You must recognize the impossibility of it and speak about it. If you don't speak about how impossible it is, then what's the point? How do we know these things? Is it biblical? Look at Romans 4, 70 to 20. Abraham does this. And once you speak about how impossible it is, then dare to trust God. Avoid it. If you don't tell your story before it happens, the story that is told after it happens lacks suspense. Tell your story before it happens. We try to hedge our bets by not telling people what we expect so that should it fail, we still save face. We say we are trying to save God's face. We are trying to save our face. Fourth, grasp the outcome as your present possession. If you dare to trust him, now you begin to behave like, hey, my name's Abraham, but I'm changing it to Abraham. Because even though I don't have a kid and it's been 20 years now, guess what? I'm so convinced that I'm grasping the outcome as my present possession. And then the last one is, regardless of whether you receive it in two years or 20 years, you have learned the first four steps so well that it's very hard to break you from it. Any questions, guys? Anything you want to add? Anything you want to challenge? Thing is, guys, faith became a necessity only after Adam fell. Eh? It's strange how Adam is never mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. In all the guys mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, you would think that the guy who came first would be mentioned, and Adam is never mentioned. It goes straight to Cain. Uh, sorry, it goes straight to Abel. Adam isn't mentioned because he did not need faith. He just needed obedience. Faith was the result of Adam's eyes being opened. And so here are the things that you have to recognize comes at you even at a time like this. These are the things that we will struggle with on a daily basis ever since the fall. Adam's eyes were open. As Satan said, it would be open. But look at what his eyes were open to. One, reasoning. Two, speculative thinking. Three, 
calculated response. Four, selective allegiance. Five, rationale. Leave alone the fact that his eyes open to evil. When it came to taking God at his word, the moment Adam's eyes opened, these things kicked in. And man, do we struggle with this every day. Every day. I mean, t take the simple thing like COVID that's happening right now. And this is what we're battling with, eh? Every day, your eyes are open to this idea of reasoning things out. Every day you indulge in speculative thinking. If this happens, this could happen, and if this happens, then it's speculative thinking where you begin to think about and speculate about what you do not yet know. Every day we go into calculated responses, as in I have to weigh the pros and cons before I decide. Pros and cons weighing is not the way any of those guys would have made it into Hebrews 11. None of the Hebrews 11 guys chose this, eh? They'd have never made it into Hebrews 11 had they chosen this path. And yet this is what confronts us every day. Fourth, selective allegiance. As in, this I should walk with God. This I should go with my boss. This I should walk with God. This I should go with my doctor. This I should walk with God. This I should go with family traditions. It's selective allegiance because the outcome is determined by the allegiance you forge. And the last one is sheer rationale. And rational is a little different from reasoning. Diana is going to ask, how is it different? So I'm going to answer before she asks. Reasoning is reasoning that Diana will ask that question. Rational is the ability to have a philosophy that you constantly use as a foundation to interpret the world through. It's your worldview. Fight this, guys. Fight this. Pardon? Yeah, don't get mad and blame Adam. If he hadn't fallen, you would have. <laughs> yep. Uh, eyes were open to the knowledge of good and evil. So um, Adam wasn't aware of evil, which is what makes his fall so pathetic that he fell even though he didn't know evil. We guys have a far greater struggle. We have to choose between good and evil. He had to choose between obedience and disobedience with no evil. Um, I would say it's hiding under his wings and being able to see adversity and evil and not be affected by it or not be influenced by it. So when Moses talks about hiding in under his wings, he's not talking about an escape from adversity. He's talking about being in the midst of adversity and still being safe. Yeah. So it's not this idea of being raptured, eh? Christians want to be raptured. God is not interested. No, really. He wants us to be in the midst of adversity and in the midst of adversity become a safe haven. The ark was a classic example of the midst of adversity and yet a safe haven. Yeah. 
Yeah, very good. Uh, reasoning is this uh, insatiable thirst we have to understand things before we can obey. We have to have our reason satisfied. And it's overrated, guys. You do not need to understand to obey. The obedient believe and the believing obey. But to try and understand stuff before you obey is so irrational because we are talking about a God who works in the impossible. Yeah. Seek wisdom and understanding. Uh, seek God's wisdom and understanding. Because uh, there's a difference between Sophia, which is worldly wisdom, and then there is God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is uh, enshrined in the person of Christ and his nature. So seeking the wisdom of God, which he gives ungrudgingly, as it says in James chapter 1, is very different from trying to reason things with Sophia, which is the wisdom of the world. So it's two completely different things. And one will contradict the other. Divine wisdom contradicts worldly wisdom. That's a strange thing. It contradicts worldly wisdom. And so even when we deal with epidemics like the one we are dealing with, remember that faith does not deny reality. It faces the facts and then moves to the truth. Faith does not deny reality. Faith does not deny reality. I think I've told you about this girl I used to work with. I used to sit next to her and I would sneeze all over her and she'd say, you have a cold, and I'd say, nope. I just have symptoms of cold. And then I'd sneeze over her face again. So th 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 that is an extreme. So you cannot deny the reality of your situation, but after you face the facts, then you start moving towards the truth. A classic example, uh, Abraham. Having looked at his body and realizing the fact that he was absolutely important and was incapable of bearing children. He now began to look at the truth and was fully persuaded that the one who said that he would become the father of nations was fully capable of bringing it to pass. So one must confront facts and reality. So if you have, for if, if someone were to get this um, um, uh, COVID thingy, it is required that we recognize that the person has it. After that, it is required that we begin to help the person move towards the truth of healing. And then there's another question that rises up. When you move this person... Oh, shucks, the thing is on, right? Can you turn it off for a while? And then you'll have to turn it on again. And then you'll have to piece it together. Yeah. Since 